It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we reflect on the return of the EFL Cup with some cracking games in the fourth round, including Manchester City and Liverpool, who once again rekindled that massive rivalry. We'll talk about what that means in domestic football and, of course, what domestic football means to us. We'll also talk about Arsenal's chances of winning the Premier League and who might get relegated from the top flight. We will choose our alternative player of the year for 2022 and reflect on a magic year for women's football as well. This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft joining you uh, from Manchester where I've been a couple of nights watching the EFL Cup fourth round action, including a great game between Manchester City and Liverpool last night. We will discuss that alongside uh, much, much more with Molly Hudson, Tom Clark and Tom Allnut. How are you all? Very well, Hugh. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to see uh, my colleagues. I'm delighted to see Tom's got his Christmas jumper on, looking very festive, looking very excited. Um, Hugh, you were telling us about your little gifts that you'd got from various clubs for the, for the festive have, season. I have on the table with me uh, a bottle of white wine. It is from Manchester United, and they've also given the journalist that went to the game this week some vintage red wine from 2019. So I'll be taking that back. I don't know if it's some sort of bribe for me to be nicer about the club or what, but um, yes, see, uh, there you go, sound effects. Manchester City last night gave us a coffee cup, a portable coffee cup, which it was. It's all right. Be using. You probably won't be using. Come well, on. Well, they 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 basically put a Manchester City crest on it. So that's a, that's a definite no then. So well, some, it, just, it, um, I just wanted to out you on the podcast so that all your family members who listen to the show will know in a few days' time when you're dishing out a bottle of red wine and a Manchester City coffee cup that you actually got these the, for free. The, the and, wine and I'll not. brag about. The wine I'll brag about and pretend it was some sort of work perk. But, you know, that's going to be a stocking filler for someone else, that that, that mug from Manchester City, to be perfectly honest. Uh, thank yeah. you very much, City. I, but I just thought I thought the oil money would have got me something a little bit nicer. That's all I'm saying. That is that's all I'm fair. saying. Right. That's fair. And just before we came on the show, Tom was confessing to not having had a gift, but to have um, maybe pinched one. Tom, that's right, isn't it? I think we agreed this wouldn't be publicly aired, Tom, but... Um... <laughs> You know, if you're going to betray the uh, agreements pre-podcast, that's fine. Uh, yeah, well, it was it was a few years ago now, so I think you know different regime, but there was a very uh, classy-looking bauble on the Tottenham training ground uh, Christmas tree one year, and uh, it felt like it was kind of post hours. I'd been there quite a long time, so I thought, you know, if they're not going to give me a gift, maybe I'll just take one with me. I think that's fair, no? Fair. Anything that comes from a Premier League football club with the money that they've got, it's fair game in my opinion. All right, we've outed you on the first. This is is what this podcast is all about. Do you know what I mean? Full on admissions here. That's what I like to hear. Um, (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about the football, shall we? I think we're in a festive mood. Let's begin with that. Um, But we're also quite happy about what's coming in terms of the festive football calendar because in the Carabao Cup fourth round this week, in my opinion, we were reminded, and I know a lot of you have been watching EFL football in the last few weeks, um, since the return of, of the leagues beneath the Premier League. But we got to see, you know, firstly, in my opinion, the game between Manchester City and Liverpool at the Etihad, a higher quality football match than anything that we saw at the World Cup, in my humble opinion. No, I'm not saying it was more exciting than the World Cup final. Clearly it wasn't, but it was up there. But the thing, the fact is, I just think the teams are clearly well-coached, well-drilled, 
And it reminded us that with what we're going to see in the Premier League and what's to come for the second half of the season, the Champions League, I was right. I'll say it again. The World Cup is not the elite level of football, even though it's great to watch and we all love it. Okay, but the good thing was, I think in particular, the game, like I say, at the Etihad Stadium, we saw that the, the some of the elements that were missing from the World Cup, the atmosphere was absolutely incredible. Yes, we got it in about eight, nine, ten matches at the World Cup. But, um, you know, maybe we are going to get it on a more regular basis in domestic football. Just like the World Cup, we saw Charlton beat Brighton on penalties, a giant killing, if you like, um, for the League One side. Fantastic for them. They face Manchester United at Old Trafford in the next round uh, as their reward. But yeah, it had those elements that I think we might get over the coming weeks in terms of the FA Cup third round. We know what that means in terms of a special date in the football calendar. Uh, even the Women's Champions League this week, goals galore, big games, tough games. And I just think it whet the appetite for the second half of the season in so many different aspects. You know, like I say, the Etihad atmosphere was fantastic. There's bad blood, by the way. I've got to say this. It was weird because I was, as a Manchester United fan, sandwiched between my ops in the shape of Liverpool and Manchester City. But yeah, they have forged, I think, quite a strong rivalry and a relationship which isn't going anywhere. Even if you feel like Liverpool maybe for the coming years, 5-10% off where Manchester City are, I don't think this rivalry, what they've built up over the last four or five years, is going to go anywhere. And I think it's one that we just have to keep an eye on in terms of, you know, Premier League years. In terms of looking back at the greatest rivalries in the history of Premier League football, this could enter that realm. Tom Ornott, talk to me, could it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I always think the Liverpool-Man uh, City rivalry has just lacked a little bit of uh, bite. I know everyone kind of loves the whole, you know, Guardiola-Klopp um, respect, uh, admiration. You know, they always say that the other one is the best manager in the world, yada, yada, yada. I think, you know, which is all well and good, but it doesn't necessarily make for a, you know, grisly, exciting rivalry in the mould of the kind of Wenger-Ferguson years, I guess, which has always been what this rivalry has sort of lacked is, is, is managers that kind of want to have a go at each other. Um, but I think equally, we're kind of seeing more and more that these two teams in themselves uh, have the players, have the uh, quality to to kind of match each other. And that is almost carrying the rivalry through. And obviously, we've seen recently with, this, with the fans as well, that's now adding a kind of an added element to to it. Um, so yes, I guess it depends a little bit, you know, to be honest on, on how Liverpool do in the next few months. At the moment, there's not much of a rivalry in terms of the Premier League table. Um, but with the news that, you know, Guardiola is staying on, you know, if we assume Klopp is also going to stay on, then uh, I think there's a, a few years left to run yet for sure. I think Tom makes an excellent point about the managers. I would say, speaking as someone from Manchester and who's recording live from Manchester, I got off the train last night to see lots of merry Manchester City fans coming back from the game. I would say from a fan point of view, that rivalry has been there for a long time, just purely because if you're from Liverpool, you don't like people from Manchester. And if you're from Manchester, you don't like people from Liverpool. <laughs> that that's just, that's just how it's meant to be. So I think when you have two football teams who embody um, an elite level. It used to be United v Liverpool, but now City have very much taken on that mantle. I would say City fans have not liked Liverpool for a long time and Liverpool, as much as they still have that rivalry with United, of course, have just transferred some of that angst towards um, Liverpool, uh, towards Manchester City. Sorry. So from a fan point of view, I'd say it's always been there. I think Tom's right that what it's lacking is that kind of managerial spice, but I'm not sure we'll ever get that from um, Pep and Klopp. But it's interesting some of the points you make here about the football, because whilst I agree with you that it was really interesting last night to be in the office before I got my train back, and there was a kind of a reluctant almost excitement amongst everyone to be like, you know, I think we were all supposed to be, oh, we're not quite ready for football yet. Oh, it's so quick. God, this calendar's a bit mad. All these things that we know we're supposed to say, but ultimately football you know, domestic football at this time of the year, whether it's Premier League, whether it's cup competitions, whether it's the Football League. Yeah, we do love it, really. We really do. And I think this game had all those ingredients you talk about, Hugh, but I wonder whether part of it was that essentially with this competition for both of these clubs and with the kind of teams that they put out, a mix of superstars and some youngsters, it allowed it to have a bit of a kind of almost like a second community shield type vibe where... You, you could go for it a bit and you could play free-flowing football, which is why we had two goals in the first 15 minutes and you had end-to-end -end stuff and you had some 
quite frankly mad defending at times because it, it you know it wasn't a premier league game straight off the bat it was it was an efl cup game and it you know both managers would have had an out if they had lost the 3-0 say i think so and they both knew that and it allowed that kind of a game to develop, which when you get it between these two teams, it all is always great, great fun. I think a lot of football fans thought there's going to be a lull after the World Cup. We're not going to see the same level of intensity for a while. The teams are going to build their way back into it. The players are going to build their way back into it. And there was absolutely none of that. It was like the cage beast. I mean, it wasn't, you know, you, you felt like it was going to be, I think that the billing had been, it's almost like they're coming off the back of pre-season. But it, it, it has not been like that. The intensity of the Manchester City game, again, it was just like, oh, they've, they've, they've been released. You know, it's all this pent-up frustration of not being able to play games. The likes of Erling Haaland, you know, back on the score sheet straight away and you thought, oh, yeah, you know, we're back. We're absolutely back to what we what we we missed, basically, at the World Cup. And, um, you know, I think we're fortunate. I think that's, for me, one of the big takeaways with our domestic football, with the quality of players that we see, that, you know, you can pick up with a, a league cup and feel like you're watching a better game than you watched in the quarterfinal of the World Cup, for example. Molly, what are your thoughts? I think you, you mentioned there, maybe some people were worried about a bit of a lull um, after the World Cup. And I think for me, I don't think now is when we'll see that lull. I think it could be like towards the end of the season when everyone is properly knackered because they haven't had that break that they might have had or they've like had extra travel or whatever. So I think now, in a way, it might almost work the other way that they've like quite a lot of the players have had extra games, but then you're mixing that with people at Haaland who have had like a mini break and are going to come back even more sort of refreshed, which I'm sure is absolutely fantastic news for everyone that isn't Man City. Um, so I think... Yeah, I don't think we'll actually see that now. I think we'll, we might see it in a, in a few months and then people will start saying, oh, everyone's tired, it's injuries, it's like player load, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think in terms of Pep and Klopp, I think there is probably a bit more needle than there used to be as well in that rivalry. And I think it's just because like Klopp clearly doesn't like losing and, and increasingly it's City that they lose to. And I think... That is annoying him, and I think you see that. Um, but I think it's just symptomatic of of kind of those two teams that have been at the top, isn't it? Like you think of the great rivalries; they're always greater when the two teams are actually fighting for something. Whereas I think if if you look at say Man United recently, sorry Hugh, but um, some of their rivalries have maybe dimmed a little bit because they haven't been. Like they've still meant something as a derby, but they haven't meant something in the wider. You can say they've been rubbish. You can say they've been rubbish. It's okay. Yeah. I, I won't hammer you. They've they've not <laughs> been good enough. Yeah, they've not been good enough. So it sort it sort of ruins the rivalry a bit, doesn't it? Because you don't have that same feeling going into the game. Whereas I think for City and Liverpool recently, it's been like, I mean, maybe now it's like City have kind of overtaken everyone, but it it did always feel like City were the team that could kind of get under the skin of Pep's team. So I think that's sort of maybe why that rivalry has become something that as well the neutrals like love not just you know City and Liverpool fans I think it's always a great game to watch isn't it yeah it was a great game to watch last night Tom oh no we just need to um quickly reflect on the game I had a feeling that this week like I say that the players would feel a little bit unshackled I definitely think a lack of VAR I know I hate to I hate to bring up those three letters. Not again. Don't do it. It's Christmas. We're having a nice time. Don't do it. Um, it just made for a freedom of the players and the fans. They on you know the idea that when the ball hit the back of the net and the ref blew the whistle that was it. You could celebrate. You know, I do think that people kind of revel in that. It feels like football again, you know, and and I just think that helped make for not just at the Etihad a great round of the EFL Cup because players weren't just like released from the fact that they hadn't played for a while. They were like, oh, we can just go for it. And that's why I think defending was, a lot of the games were end-to-end. The defending wasn't great because players were just like, it's a hit out. We're going to have fun. We're going to enjoy ourselves. It's been a while since we played. We're actually quite fit at this part of the season. So let's just go for it. And I I just think they were fun games. I honestly really can't tell you how much I enjoyed them. Even the game at Old Trafford, even though Burnley should have scored at least once, didn't, but they they made for a great tie against Manchester United. 
yeah, I just think maybe um, if the players take this kind of freedom and this sense that they are, you know, they're back, if you like, into the Premier League, into the, the Championship and League One and League Two, it's going to be a great Christmas period. Yeah, I, I think it feels a little bit like uh, the start of the season. It's that kind of feeling you have in August and it's a bit weird because it's uh, freezing cold and, and uh, Christmas, but it's a little bit like the restart. You're sort of having to remember what all the teams were doing two, a month ago, which is a bit like the start of the season. It's like, you know, uh, new players sort of coming in. Can my team kind of uh, uh, completely reverse the form that they came into, you know, in, in November? Uh, okay, there aren't new signings, but there are going to be soon in January. So there's this kind of whole new sort of excitement, enthusiasm feeling for for a second half of the season, which actually, I mean, you know, we, we're sort of assuming it's a half-half, but it's actually not. We're only about, what, about a third of the way through, given it's only 14 games. So I agree. I think there is a, a real sense of excitement going into this kind of second half of this second period of the season. Um, and, I, and I do think a lot of the players, I, I sort of, I've been kind of looking into this because we're doing a, a piece around it for this weekend about kind of players coming back and resetting after the World Cup. And, and I, and I, a few people have kind of mentioned that actually maybe, I mean, it remains to be seen, but maybe this idea of sort of fatigue and mental fatigue and everything is, is actually quite overblown. In, in many cases, the vast majority of players who went to the World Cup, you know, had a fairly middling tournament. You know, there are, there are obviously the standout cases of people who sort of had incredible success or incredible disappointment. Yes, and they have things to overcome. But for the vast majority of players, they played, did fairly well, coming back after a four-week tournament in a very nice, warm environment where everything has been very straightforward, no travelling, no kind of flying around Europe, you know, to European games, not even sort of, you know, getting on long trips around this country. You know, everything was very much uh, easy and convenient for the players out there. And quite a few players obviously maybe didn't play as much as they would hope. They might have played, you know, 150 minutes or something across four weeks, which, you know, for a footballer is, is, is extremely light work. So there are a lot of players, what I'm saying is coming back to the Premier League, basically on the back of a kind of a, a competitive warm weather training camp, you know, and they're coming back into the Premier League now fairly fresh. Maybe there's a sort of sweet spot for certain players who sort of, you know, played three or four games and, and are coming back, you know, with a bit of competitive rhythm in their legs. But they've had a bit of a... Arrest. I mean, for example, you look at someone like Harry Kane. I mean, last season, I looked during this period, he played 540 minutes for Tottenham. At the World Cup, he played 403 minutes. So he's played less football than he did last season. Kevin De Bruyne played also less football at the World Cup than he did during this period last season in the Premier League. So, you know, this idea that everyone's going to come back super fatigued, I, I take Molly's point that maybe later in the season, we might see a kind of delayed onset, that that is definitely true, particularly in, in April, May. Maybe the players will be like, blimey, you know, it feels like we've crammed a lot of a lot of narrative into into this season. But I think in the next month or two, we might see a kind of a bit of an adrenaline push. And, uh, you know, from players and from fans as well, who obviously are, are delighted to kind of have club football back again. And I would count myself as one of those people. Um, Boxing Day fixtures will be absolutely fantastic. We can uh, maybe predict what will come a little bit later in terms of those games. But the second half of the season, I think that's where we should maybe aim our conversation next rather than that specific date, particularly when it comes to the top flight. And yeah, we'll, we'll review some of our early predictions for 2022 in a moment. Maybe we should make some early predictions for what's to come between now and the end of the season. And I wanted to start with, I think it's a great, the, probably the best game on Boxing Day for me, um, Arsenal's game against West Ham on Boxing Day and Arsenal, top of the Premier League table. The question is, will they sustain what they've shown us in the first 14 games? That's it. Simple. Molly? I have to say, um, as somebody who doesn't support any of these teams so um neutral in a sense i am increasingly finding myself wanting somebody that isn't man city to win the league and especially last night i was at the women's champs league at stanford bridge and saw like the goal update of harland and i was like oh here we go again he's back which is fantastic if you're man city but it's like a bit of like cheat code isn't it so i'd love to see arsenal go on and um go on and win it i think I completely agree with with what Tom A was saying, but I think Arsenal, probably the team that have struggled, are going to struggle the most because of the World Cup. Because of, um, sorry, you might be able to hear my cat meowing in the background. Because of Gabriel Jesus' injury, I think that's probably the worst thing that could possibly have happened to them. (laughs) Um, So I think in that sense, I think I, I actually 
did back them. Like I know a lot of people were saying, oh, they'll fall away in the second half of the season. They've got no chance. It's Man City, it's Pep, it's Haaland, which I completely understand. But I genuinely think they was playing really good football. There was a great, great vibe around the club. They've been building something under Arteta. But I think now it's just whether they can do it without Jesus. I suppose it's like the ultimate test. It's like, what's the thing that, could have thrown them off track the most. And it is probably this injury with the kind of lack of number nines they've really got at the club after they let um, Aubameyang go, didn't really bring anyone in until Jesus. So this is me not answering your question at all. But I personally would like Arsenal to go and do it just to liven it up again so that it's just not City again. So I'm, I'm going to say Arsenal can do it. Even you seem convinced. The World Cup might have ruined it. So for all of the talk of the World Cup not affecting the Premier League, it might have ruined it. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Mikel Arteta say that Arsenal want to go into the market uh, off the back of the Jesus injury because I think they gave Eddie and Ketty a £100,000 a week contract last summer. So it's kind of like, well, I mean, if you if you wanted him to be the backup, now's his moment. Um, he's probably going to get a run of a few games before they can bring someone in. But also it's like, what level of quality, especially a centre-forward, are you going to get in January and how much money are you going to need to spend to bring in a decent one? So I think Nketiah maybe gets it from here on out. And I, I, listen, I'm intrigued to see what Eddie can do because he scored goals at the end of last season, important goals for Arsenal. Give the guy a chance. Let's see what he does. I'd kind of be um, maybe a little bit unhappy if I was Nketiah over those comments, but it's up to him to prove to his manager that he is going to be the, the main number nine. I think you make a really good point, Hugh, about Enketia. And I was thinking about him when I was reading Mikel Arteta's quotes um, about the transfer window and spending money. Because it's fascinating with Arsenal, isn't it? They've, they've almost gone too far ahead of the projected plan, almost. When we think about where they were this time last season, um, and we're going to play some of our predictions, which aren't going to fare well for me, I don't think. But I, you know, I was praising Mikel Arteta and saying, you know, they're going to do it. They're going to get top four. And here they are talking about a title challenge and I know Arsenal fans are incredibly excited but think about where the club has come over the years and that kind of slow transformation giving Arteta time if they then turn it into a tiny tiny short trajectory of the next six months try and win the title it could make it could lead to some bad decisions I think and if they then turn, take that into the transfer market and say right we need a striker essentially for six months and we're going to spend money and maybe buy someone that doesn't fit the model, which we've worked so hard to build over the last couple of years, it could backfire on them. And that's where I think you're right, Hugh, giving the contract to Nketiah fitted with the model of what Arteta has built over the last few years. Young players, hungry players, players that fit his system. Give him a chance now. If that means, as Molly says, you're missing Jesus and ultimately maybe miss out on the chance of a proper challenge for the title, that might not be a terrible thing in the long run. Because if the alternative is going and spending a lot of money on a superstar on a superstar striker, then I don't know whether that'll do you any good in the long run. Yeah, I think Tom's uh, point is a sensible one. I think it's probably the one that Arsenal will decide. But I can't help think that this is just a, a massive opportunity for Arsenal. You know, I think they've given themselves a, a window here that, that maybe there won't be many clubs who have this opportunity maybe for for a while. You know, we look at look at Man City, they very, very rarely give anyone a sniff in the Premier League title race. They've won the title, what is it, five out of the last six years? And the, the one time they didn't win it was was to an exceptional Liverpool team. I think when you have a five-point lead after 14 games, okay, it's still early days. Um, but I just think Arsenal maybe have to roll the dice here. I mean, I know that that's probably not the kind of, you know, Tom, you sound very much like a sporting director. I think that's exactly the right thing. I think that's exactly what you should do. Long-term planning, don't upset the apple cart, bring in the right kind of recruitment strategy, all this kind of thing. But ultimately now they have six months where they could win the title and they start they start a sort of a mini season with a five-point lead out of Manchester City who very, very rarely give anyone a chance these days. Um, and I just think if they could be really bold in this in this January market, maybe make a couple of signings, um, you know, we, we, we see how, how much kind of, for example, Kulisevsky and Benton could, you know, transform Tottenham last season. It can happen. The January market is very difficult, but it can happen. You can find one or two players if you're prepared to spend a bit of extra money. And if they did that and brought in a, you know, a, a really good central midfielder, you know, and another striker, for example, then I think they could really go all the way. I think they have that momentum. They have a base. They have a really good spirit. There's huge belief and a, a real sense of unity at Arsenal behind the manager now. Um, I would just like to see them kind of 
not be sensible in January and maybe uh, sort of just just go for it and uh, and try and do something special. But I, I suspect you're right; they will sort of stick to the stick to the plan. One thing's for sure in terms of my New Year's resolutions is to make sure to get you on the podcast more, Tom. If you're going to call me a sporting director, that's definitely the nicest thing that's ever been said to me <laughs> on this on this show. But I, you, you make a really interesting point, and I'd be. I'd be fascinated to know what Arsenal fans listening to this are thinking, whether they agree with me, Mr. Pragmatism, or you, Mr. Uh, Romantic, go for it, we could win the title. Because I think they'll be really split. I would be willing to come into your camp if the money is spent on someone who fits the model. I don't mind them spending money that, you know, we, as you say, you can spend money in January. But the point with your Bentonker and Kulisevsky examples are that they fitted what Conte wanted going forward at Tottenham. And I just don't know whether there's a striker out there who can... It's Because essentially what they'd be signing is a rival to Eddie and Ketia slash backup to Gabriel Jesus long-term. And you're then going to have to overspend on that. But also he's going to have to be good enough to replace Jesus in the long term. It's such a small tiny like margins that you're gonna you're, that you're looking for here i just don't know whether that player exists and i think what you then end up doing the other way is essentially you're essentially looking to but bu- find another pierre emerick Aubameyang to buy back for six months that's that's essentially what i think they're ending up looking for and that mm. could massively i know you're saying upset the apple cart but it is it's a delicately balanced apple cart at arsenal and it it's been a very upset one over the last couple of years He's finally got everything really sorted. So I, I just wonder whether he'd be able to find that per, that perfect signing. Cristiano Ronaldo is still available for a short term <laughs> uh, short term contract. So uh, you know you don't you don't always have to go out and spend big. No, I'm joking. Of course, I'm joking. Um, all I would say is I think there are some Arsenal fans, some Arsenal fans, who maybe see the bigger picture different to others. Some will feel that we're you know Arsenal are building towards being a side that can win the Premier League. And if it's not this year, then it can be the next year or the year after that, especially with a very young and talented side. I think there are some who sense the reality of what's going on in the Premier League right now, and you're not going to have many opportunities to win the Premier League, especially with the spending of the other clubs around them, which, for, you know, Manchester United spend more. They're not better, but they spend more. City obviously spend more. Newcastle United look like they're going to be big spenders. How are you going to win the Premier League when City, Liverpool, we know are a great side. Newcastle might be there within three years and suddenly your opportunity is passed, even if you are back to being a regular top four side. So there are some Arsenal fans who I think will be saying, look, we're not going to have many of these opportunities over the next 10 years. Let's go for it. Um, let's buy a player who's young, who's good. And if we spend you know, a little bit extra money, maybe we've still got good resale value on that player. We'll either get the money back or the vast majority of it back might only cost us five, 10 million pounds. And for a lot of uh, a lot of Arsenal fans, excuse me, that will be worth it. Um, but we'll see. I'm intrigued to see if Arsenal can keep it up, to be honest, because I think they have been the best team in the Premier League so far. I w- I, I, listen, I wanted to ask you about Newcastle, but I think we can come to that after Boxing Day, because I do definitely want to ask a similar question. I didn't know we were going to talk about Arsenal for so long, but about the bottom of the table. And I was going to ask specifically about Southampton under Nathan Jones and whether they can stay in the Premier League. But actually, you look at the bottom of the table, the bottom seven teams separated by six points from Bournemouth down in 14th, Leeds United, West Ham, Everton, Nottingham Forest, Southampton, and the bottom club is Wolves. Who now they've got Julian Lopetegui, you just you forget that they're actually bottom of the Premier League after 15 games. How do you see, and I'm not asking you to make a, a major prediction on who will finish in the bottom three, but do you see a team in there, Molly, who will rise from the ashes? It's funny that you just said about sort of forgetting Wolves were down there. That's exactly what I did the other day. I was actually reading the, I think it was the report of their Carabao Cup game, possibly. Yeah, read that they were bottom of the league and actually had to like go back, check the Premier League table and see that they were indeed bottom of the league. So I had completely forgot, but I suppose that would be my prediction that I don't think they'll go down. I think Southampton have kind of, they almost hung on to Ralph a little bit too long, I think. And now that's quite a difficult job, I think. So yeah, my my sort of prediction that you can record and then play and age terribly is that Wolves will get out of there. I think they'll be fine. West West Ham are struggling a little bit again, aren't they? Bit of a bit of a weird sort of club with the with the whole European football 
element thrown in there as well. Um, but yeah, I think I think Wolves will be fine. Come on, Molly, that's not much of a bold prediction. Saying Wolves, with all that superstar squad of European talent, is going to get out of relegation. Don't be coming on the show and pretending you're bold making a prediction like that, honestly. I think it's interesting at the bottom because Wolves are not the only club who their fans and a lot in you know of us in the media would be sensing will have an upward trajectory. Um, you talk about Southampton having changed manager, but I think teams like Leeds, I could see Leeds improving with the kind of young players that they've got, players like Tyler Adams who impressed at the World Cup. It feels like they're, while still potentially being a little, little haphazard at times, I wouldn't be surprised if they put a little run together at some point. As much as Molly's right that West Ham are struggling, I can't see them staying down there under David Moyes too long. So it's going to be interesting to see what the likes of Wolves um, and if Leeds and West Ham and some of those teams start to rise up the table, what what that means for teams a bit higher up than you mentioned, Hugh. I, I, you know, Crystal Palace, yes, they've got 19 points already, um, but I know from some colleagues in the office that that means absolutely nothing to a Palace fan in terms of their survival at the end of the season. And you go up to even teams like Fulham, um, and Brentford, who've had very solid starts to the season, Fulham particularly, been impressive. But you just look at teams below them and wonder whether they'll be caught up and dragged back down into things. Aston Villa as well, with a new manager, as of course, you can sense that they'll get become quite hard to beat under Unai Emery and become quite solid. So it's going to be interesting to see that shift between teams that maybe creep up. And we've done these uh, before on the desk, those kind of fascinating graphs that track teams through the season and, and you move along in terms of the dates as the season progresses and the kind of the movements up and down the table. I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those teams around the kind of ninth to 14th range, Bournemouth, Leicester, Palace, Brentford and Fulham maybe dragged back down by teams at the bottom creeping up. You know what? You get the feeling looking at the Premier League that just about nobody is safe because either it's a really tight league when you look at the records of teams. There's only a few clubs with a win rate that is above... 50%, to be perfectly honest, um, only the top five have won more than half of their games. And even when you look at Tottenham in fourth, Man United in fifth, Liverpool in sixth, they've all lost four games already in the Premier League, pretty much on track to lose double figures of games. And and look, there was a, maybe a, a bit of a feeling that teams were treading water a little bit in the in the opening part of the season. A lot of people with one eye on the World Cup, players too with one eye on the World Cup. When you look at the bottom part of the table, I only did the bottom seven teams because I thought, look, Leicester City 13th, Villa 12th, Palace 11th. Are they going to get dragged back into it? Brentford 10th. But Fulham in 9th, you almost think, oh, they're not that far. You know, they're six points above the relegation zone at this point in time. You know, just takes a bad run of you know, five or six games and they'll be right back in it. So it's very difficult to call at the bottom of the table. Um, and you wonder just who's going to go out in January and spend the money that maybe will see them survive in the Premier League. And, and that might be the difference. I think that's an interesting point about January spending, um, particularly with some of those managerial changes that we've talked about. But you mentioned them there, Leicester City. I mean, do we think we'll be on this podcast this time next year and Brendan Rodgers will still be Leicester City manager? That would be extraordinary if he was. Imagine if he turned it around and got them up into the kind of top eight and was still Leicester City manager after all they've been through. It's, we talked about them for the last year in terms of the narrative around their club being what they are being fascinating. Does anyone else see Rodgers still being here in a year's time, Tom? No, I think probably not. I mean, I think if they do well and they recover, um, not only would it have been a, would it, would it have been a great job by Rodgers, to be honest, although recovering from a position, you know, that probably we wouldn't have expected Leicester to be in. Right? It might suit Rodgers and the club to kind of have a have a, an amicable parting next summer. Um, I, I think what's kind of interesting as well is that there have been so many managerial changes already and that the World Cup has obviously given us... Uh, uh, has given them a a, a period of of, of um, settling in that they might not otherwise normally have had. We know when managers come in mid-season, we always kind of see them as having to kind of hit the ground running, make do with what they have. Um, whereas this time, you know, coaches like Emery, for example, have had, you know, a really good month with the vast majority of their squad on the training ground, which, you know, for someone like Emery, who's very much a kind of details-minded coach, um, very much about kind of planning for opponents, uh, huge amounts of video analysis, you know, this kind of thing wouldn't have been possible if there wasn't kind of a month-long break to to go through all that. And so we might see, you know, some of these teams who have made managerial changes 
massively benefiting from that. Um, equally, I think, you know, if we're talking about Wolves, for example, bringing in a load of new signing in, in January, this is probably not the season when you want to be gelling, you know, five or six new players in the second half of the season because there are going to be so many matches all the time that there isn't really going to be any any time for people to meet each other and, and get used to each other. I think there are some interesting some interesting subplots. I mean, for example, Ivan Tony, you know, we're, we're talking about Brentford flying high at the moment. But what happens if Tony gets a you know a lengthy ban in in what we think will probably be February? You know when the when the verdict will come. You know it could well be that Brentford have to play the last three or four months of the season without their uh, star player and and basically their their main source of goals. And I think Jones at Southampton is a, is a really interesting appointment. You know everyone who who knows Jones much better than I do, you know, talks of him as being an extremely intense uh, coach, um, very. Um, very focused, uh, very good sort of motivator, but can maybe, you know, could go either way. You know, Southampton have a very young, malleable squad with some very talented young players. And it might be that they have the kind of makeup um, of their team that could could suit a manager like Jones. He might be able to sort of get those players to, to rally around him very quickly. But if not, I think it could equally go go south quite quickly as well. So I, I agree. I think it's uh, it's close. There are some, some big teams like West Ham and Everton are right down there. I mean, blimey, Everton probably finished the pre-World Cup season, you know, worse than anyone I felt. You know, those two defeats to Bournemouth, aggregate score 7-1, I think. You know, I, th- I think Lampard was pretty relieved to get that break um, and he needs to uh, to start quickly, that's for sure. Yeah, number of clubs in that position in the second half of the season. Thank you guys for uh, coming with me on that journey as to what might happen. And up next on the Game Podcast, we're going to look back on some of our predictions for 2022. I wonder how wrong we were. So take everything we just said with a a massive pinch of salt on the basis of what you're going to hear next. Stay with us. Right then, we made some predictions at the end of 2021 and we're going to take a look next at how they worked out. It was myself alongside Tom Clark and Jonathan Northcroft and the first thing we predicted going out to Qatar was England's World Cup chances. I think they might get to the final. I don't think they'll win it, but I think uh, I think I think the the ride might continue under Gareth. I think they might not struggle. They'll probably do what old-fashioned England in quarterfinals. But as as Johnny says, under this under Gareth Southgate, that would be seen as a failure. But yeah, something about I don't know the transition of the team will have those same Grealish Foden problems again, and it won't quite work. And so yeah, quarterfinals. I'm going to say the draw cannot be as nice for England as it has been in previous World Cups. So I think we're getting a tough group stage draw. That might affect things. We might get a tough second round as well. So I'm going to put the spanner in the works and say quarterfinals, but because we play very difficult teams and we'll still leave with some pride uh, from Qatar in 2022. I think we should bask in this while we can, Hugh, because I think it's downhill after here. But, you know, let, let's let's we now know why England did so badly, because they were jinxed by a Scotsman, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan Northcroft getting things wrong. I, I like the fact that we were quite accurate in the detail that we went into, Tom. So, yeah, pat on the back for both of us in terms of our 2021 prediction for England's World Cup chances. You may be right. Might go downhill from here because I don't remember seeing Scotland play any matches at all in Qatar and hopefully none of us predicted that did we well here's one call we got wrong of course they will yeah Ukraine uh, are, are there for the taking and, and we always beat Wales in the playoffs easy one I think that says it all you've got a Scott being confident we've said it about Steve Clark what he's done to that squad yes yes all the way I tend to agree I think the playoff draw went very nicely for them ah yeah immediately downhill very 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 vertical in terms of uh, <laughs> our predictions there. No, look, we thought Scotland were going to do well. They, they let us down. You know, I'm not going to take that one on. The, the, everything we said there was correct in terms of their chances. They had a great chance. They bottled it. That one's for you, Gregor Robertson. Anyway, <laughs> Johnny and Tom were also off the mark about two other teams at the World Cup. Portugal miss out. They've got some rather Manchester United-like problems and I'll, I'll leave it there. I can't see Italy missing out. I think a little bit of a blip, but they'll go back to all the Italian qualities and that'll see them through, I think. Uh, Devastated, Tom. 
Yeah, never mind. I mean, I'm going to put that down to on to my bias towards all things Italy and my love of going on holiday there. So at least they'll let me back in the country with that kind of favoritism. But I would say John, Johnny, in his defense there, and he's getting an absolute kicking by not being on this show to defend himself. <laughs> love you, Johnny. Miss you. It, he wasn't all that wrong Portugal long term, was he, in terms of the things he said about them having some Manchester United-like qualities. They, they potentially showed through when it came to the tournament itself. He just maybe called it a little too early. Right then, let's move on because Erling Haaland's future was the big topic last Christmas. But who called it right? I think he'll be playing in a wide position for Manchester City as Guardiola (laughs) signs him and then tries to make him unlearn being a number nine. I would really like one of the English clubs to sign Robert Lewandowski so that we can see him play in the Premier League and therefore Bayern Munich will do what Bayern Munich do and go and sign the best players from their rivals. So Erling Haaland will be there. It's a tough one. I'm going to say Manchester City. You picked the easy one, man. I'm not giving you that as a, I'm not giving you that as a good prediction. That was, that was, was it the easy went, one at the time? Yeah, come on. I went left field. I went Bayern Munich. I should be praised for being a bit different. There are definitely two, two correct predictions so far. That's yeah, two yeah, out of this, three. I mean, who this produces is how, this podcast? You know? This is how it works. We need to speak to producer John. I mean, it's almost like they, they work together and they know each other quite well. It's a bit of a fix, isn't it? It's disgraceful. Such a, such a shame. I'm usually wrong about everything. If you go back and listen to the recaps of my predictions on literally every other podcast, this is the best one for me so far, I have to say. Got to say, just in Jonathan Northcroft's defence, because he'll be listening thinking they've thrown me under a bus. He was being a little bit facetious. I don't think he thought Pep Guardiola was actually going to play uh, Haaland out on the on the wing. But anyway, let's move on. Finally, we predicted who would be in charge at Manchester United come the end of 2022. Well, why do I, I'm going to stick with Thomas Tuchel. Let's just let's just let's be a bit whimsical. Part of me hopes that actually they keep pulling everything apart so much to the extent that it gets to the summer and actually they realise let's just keep going down the road we're doing and so Ralph Ranjit will still be manager for another season of rebuild. But if not, let's go my new favourite manager of the moment after he proved me right for defending him on Monday's show, Brendan Rodgers. Okay, okay. I'm going six-year deal from Mauricio Pochettino. I think that's got Manchester United written all over it, to be perfectly honest. Oh, dear. Now I've got it right. Oh, oh dear. That's, that's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm laughing because I'm, yeah, I very, very nicely uh, managed to make it home for Christmas and I'm currently sat in the same place uh, in my parents' house where I was sat when I made that exact prediction last year. So I knew it was coming. And I mean, all I can say is Manchester United fans, thank God I was wrong, eh? Ralph Ranić transition into a Brendan Rodgers takeover. Yeah, I'm not sure that would have gone as well as Eric Ten Hag. Yeah, I've still got question marks. We'll see. We'll see when it comes to Manchester United. We will make more very, I think debatable let's call it that let's be nice debatable predictions as we move into uh, the new year plenty of festive uh, podcasts to come for you we'll predict what we think will happen in the next 12 months in a few weeks time but that was our look back on 2021 well i'm going to give us a, a solid six out of ten small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Gregor has dipped in to our next topic, which is an alternate player of the year, an alternative player of the year. So many of us have got involved, in fact, on the game podcast with this, and we might as well start with Gregor to see exactly what he's done. Has it been obvious? Has it been you know, so clear in his mind that all of us are just going to skim beyond his his alternative player of the year. Is he obvious? Is he captain obvious? My alternative Premier League player of 2022 is Kieran Trippier. Whatever our views of the new regime at St James's Park these days, Newcastle United have been the team of 2022. They were 19th in the Premier League on December 31st and they're now third in the Premier League and whether we like it or not that feat after two transfer windows and with this team is pretty extraordinary and without doubt in my eyes the player who's had the biggest impact for Eddie Howe's side since he joined from Atletico Madrid in January is Kieran Trippi he's created more chances than any of his teammates he's scored some crucial free kicks makes more successful crosses per game than any other player in the Premier League He's second only really to James Ward-Prowse in terms of his set-piece accuracy. That's been a huge facet of Newcastle's play. And I just think that when he returned to the Premier League after three years in Spain, after winning La Liga, the whole narrative was about how much Trippier had improved defensively under Diego Simeone. And that's true. He's a big reason why Newcastle have conceded only 11 goals this season and have the joint best defence in the league. But he's arguably their most important creative player too. And I think he's been absolutely outstanding in 2022. So Kieran Trippi is my alternative player of the year. What do you think, Tom? Uh, he's, he's, he's argued for genuinely not an alternative player of the year, but his player of the year. I mean, he is captain, obvious. Yeah, I mean, he started out thinking, oh, yeah, it's quite left field. But then by the end of it, I've decided it's the most obvious choice you could have made. We'll, we'll stick with him. As an alternative choice, I think once we all make our nominations and we hear some other from some other friends of the game podcast, I think Gregor will end up looking pretty obvious by the end of it. Right, let's before we go to one of our other friends, uh, let's discuss ours. Molly Hudson, I'll come to you. Who have you chosen as your alternative player of the year? Because it was alternative, I was thinking about kind of like moments I've had this year that have been like, I think as journalists, occasionally you have those moments where you feel like a fan and like you're genuinely buzzing. And for me, in a very unexpected turn of events, it was the Arnold Clark Cup, which is the most unexciting, unglamorous thing ever at Molyneux. And um, England were playing Germany and it was 1-1. And to win this inaugural like friendly tournament, to win this cup that nobody will remember ever again, was we needed to win the game. And Serena Wiegmann put, Millie Bright, the centre-back up top. And as someone who absolutely loves the idea of that, and I love the fact that Serena doesn't care about pretty football or whatever, if you need to win, she'll just stick a big man up top, essentially. Um, and she did that, and Millie Bright scored the winner. And it, it was just the best thing ever. And then the even better part of this narrative was that she she ended up winning. She'd already scored earlier in the tournament from like a set piece or something. And she ended up winning the golden boot, sharing it with Alexi Puteas, the Ballon d'Or winner. At the end of the game, when they did the trophies, Alexi was like, do you know what, Millie, you can have this one. Just, just gave her this golden boot for the Arnold Clark Cup. And... Um, Aside from that being a fantastic moment, it also sort of foreshadowed what happened in the European Championships as well, because we were essentially in the exact same position against Spain in the quarterfinals. Um, and again, Serena put Millie up top and she didn't score this time, but she kind of made a nuisance of herself and England did end up scoring. So I think of of all of the England players that that maybe you could have picked, um, I'm going for Millie Bright, the super sub. Well, super super striker. She was still on the pitch. She just just moved forward. That's more like it. Molly puts Robertson right in his place with a proper alternative pr- prediction. Superb. Tom Olner, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'm going to go for uh, Emiliano Martinez because although he is the most hated man in football, I think at the moment, I think we have to give credit to someone who makes the whole world 
feel sorry for Kylian Mbappe, who, let's not forget, you know, earns 200 million euros a year and uh, had, you know, various heads of state phoning him to uh, persuade him to stay at PSG in the summer. Um, and the stars are very much aligned for you know Mbappe to win the World Cup for for Qatar and for for, for PSG etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And I understand you know the whole Messi narrative you know very uh, very good for football romantic uh, what a legacy greatest player of all time etc. Very nice you know very uh, very cozy for football but you know football needs its its villains you know and the World Cup uh, wouldn't have been the same without Martinez and uh, ultimately he was the one who denied. Um, France, you know, basically a back-to-back uh, World Cup, which, you know, nobody wants. And most of all, you know, in his celebrations, yes, maybe he went a bit far, but equally, everyone now thinks that Mbappe is this sort of wrong victim of, of the World Cup final. And I think credit to him. I think credit to him for changing the narrative, uh, in being an innovator when it comes to uh, uh, saving penalties and putting people off. Um, I'm all for it. I'm all for the uh, the badness of Emiliano Martinez, um, and uh, he is therefore my alternative player of the year. I would like to put in a word as well for Miguel Almiron, given you know Jack Grealish saying that the, doing Almiron is basically playing badly, and then Almiron went on to score about 16 goals in in 10 games, which I thought was a, a pretty good transformation. So I give him a, a sort of a silver medal in my in my alternative player of the year, but Martinez is is the standout champion. Lovely shouts. Lovely shouts there. Um, yeah, good. Okay, all right, let's continue. I actually enjoyed that because I think, yeah, I'm not a fan of Martinez at the moment, but that does make him alternate. That makes him alternative player of the year, despite his his triumph and, and the Golden Glove celebration. Anyway, let's hear from James Restall next. He's given us his alternative player of the year. My alternative player of 2022 is Oleg Sinchenko. The first half of 2022, he won the Premier League with Manchester City amid the backdrop of um, the the, the horrendous war in Ukraine, which clearly uh, deeply affected him and the other Ukrainian players in the Premier League. And nonetheless, he he remained a seriously influential uh, player for Manchester City during that period. He then moved to to Arsenal in the summer, um, where he's had a, a massive impact and has been transformational in in, uh, in, in getting Arsenal to the top of the Premier League. So I think um, he's deserving of, um, of of great praise for a truly remarkable 2022. I like it. I like it a lot. Zinchenko's huge impact at Arsenal. But yeah, I think James is right to highlight all of the stuff that was going on in his home nation and what an emotional year it was. And he's come through it strongly in terms of his football. So yeah, he can be proud of everything he's done. Who knows? He might pick up another uh, Premier League winner's medal at the end of the season. That would be an incredible, incredible result for him. Okay, not long to go on these. Tom Roddy is next. My alternate player of the year is Eric Dyer, partly because of the recovery in his career over the last year, over 2022. It's 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 easy to forget now that in 2021, Jose Mourinho was manager at Tottenham and Eric Dyer's form really fell off a cliff. He was struggling at Tottenham massively and and the consequences of that was losing his place in the England squad and the dent that made in his confidence was significant. Uh, And I think even Antonio Conte may have touched on that when he first became the Tottenham head coach. And now we are heading into 2023 where Eric Dyer is really a a key member of that squad, uh, of of that team. And for uh, Tottenham and, and maybe and a totally underappreciated one, really, because it is quite natural that we look at Harry Kane, we look at Hyungmin Son, we look at Dejan Kulisevsky, and even in defence, there is a natural tendency to uh, look at Christian Romero because of, of his qualities. But Eric Dyer has been a significant part of making this work for Antonio Conte because he doesn't have the midfielder that he's had in the past like Cesc Fabregas at Chelsea and Christian Eriksen at Inter Milan so he needs he's needed Eric Dyer to 
both be the defensive rock, but also that quarterback, the guy who can spray the ball, uh, play those long balls up down the channels, the fast wingers. Again, the kind of the consequences, the reward for this uptake in form was being part of the England squad. And, and I know, obviously, he wasn't, he didn't play a significant role in Qatar. But it, at one stage, probably before the tournament, you could say quite justifiably on form that maybe Harry Maguire shouldn't have been in the team and that Eric Dyer should. I think Gareth Southgate made the right decision there, but it's 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 kind of by the by. It's Eric Dyer on form probably deserved to be starting in the England team at centre-back. Okay, Eric Dyer. Now, listen, I'm liking these. In terms of comeback stories, Eric Dyer right up there. Tom Roddy is right. But I've gone for the ultimate comeback story so far this year in the shape of a man who I'm often negative about. Manchester United's Harry Maguire. Yes, Harry Maguire. I don't know how the meme goes, but something along those lines. The point is, he has been ridiculed. He has been ridiculed. And I will say this. The ridicule maybe was unfair to Harry Maguire. Maybe was unfair. It went a little bit too far. It crossed a number of lines because it wasn't just about his football, which was not good enough for most of the year. But the point is, when the whole country is screaming... He shouldn't be in the England squad, shouldn't be anywhere near the team. And I agreed with that. All of us agreed with that. If you thought he should start, Gareth Southgate, I'm talking to you, then you're an idiot. But ultimately, he has proved his manager right. He has proved all of his doubters wrong with his World Cup performances, which were once again exceptional. And who knows, maybe he has resurrected his Manchester United career. Maybe we will see a new and improved Harry Maguire. Maybe the time out of the team has actually helped him. But anyway, in terms of his performances in an England shirt, they cannot be questioned on the biggest stage with all, you know everyone watching, your whole nation's hopes behind you. He excelled once again. And just for those few games that he played at the World Cup, he is my alternative player of the year because with everything that was on his shoulders, he had every right to crumble he had every right to, to lose his place, make the errors that we've seen before. And he went up against some of the best players in the world. And yeah, I think he performed admirably. That's the compliment that I'm giving you, Harry. You performed admirably. Thank you. I will try my best not to criticize you as much in 2023. That's a promise. It's a Christmas miracle, everyone, on the game podcast. He wasn't crossed. You turned on Harry Maguire. Wonderful, wonderful to listen to you, Hugh. Uh, give such a glowing tribute to the big man. And I, I've got to say, I've got to commend you. That's really right up there in terms of alternative shouts. Wonderful stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck, Harry, in 2023. Yeah, I've turned on, on Harry Maguire. You are right. And I wish him the best in 2023. Hopefully he'll bring home some big trophies for Manchester United. More likely he'll be sold. But anyway, Tom Clark, you are last. <laughs> Who have you gone for? Well, you've left me with a very, very difficult task after that excellent suggestion. But mine is arguably so alternative that some Premier League fans might not even heard of him. With some of those embarrassing predictions in mind earlier. Uh, I wanted to cheat a little bit and give an honourable mention to Andreas Pereira at Fulham. Um, I think in our pre-season pre preview show, I said that he wasn't a great signing and he wasn't going to do anything to keep them in the Premier League. After starting 2022 on loan again from Manchester United, he now looks like a bit of a superstar in Fulham's impressive season so far. But my vote goes to a left-back who worked his way up the Football League pyramid and is now playing in the Premier League at mighty Nottingham Forest, Harry Toffolo. This time last year, he was at Huddersfield. He was part of their charge to the playoff final, bombing forward from left wing back. He got eight assists in the process. He then got his move to the Premier League in the summer, which completed a three-year turnaround from winning League Two with the mighty Lincoln City. There you go. I managed to get in a mention on, on the Christmas special. But yeah, three years ago, he was winning League Two with Lincoln, now in the Premier League. He's been in and out of the Forest team with injury, but he was back in the side for the EFL Cup win against Blackburn. Um, and so he is my alternative shout for player of the year because I think he embodies so much of what we love about football sometimes, particularly me as a fan of the Football League, when we see players who've either played for our clubs or that we've seen at Football League level climb through the, through the levels and make it to the Premier League. Um, it's always really lovely to see. And 
he is an absolutely lovely, lovely lad as well. So I wish him all the best for 2023 too. Yeah, Tom, I think you might have superseded me there with Harry Toffolo. You said I was a tough act to follow, but actually I love that shout and I get every reason why you've you've selected him. Um, but I got to say, if I'm going to use my powers as the host on this podcast to give an official award out for the game podcast, alternative player of the year for the calendar year, 2022, I'm going to go for Molly Hudson shout, Millie Bright. But listen, I want you guys to go online. You can do it right now. Time's out. You can go online at thetimes.co.uk as well. And you can actually vote, given all of our suggestions for your alternative player of the year. And we will tell you who has picked up that award from you, the fans, very, very soon. There is one more thing that I do want to discuss with you. And it's actually... I guess, you know, should should we mention other companies? I don't know. Are you allowed to say the 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 acronym BBC? Are we allowed to talk about the British Broadcasting Corporation? Do you just switch off? Are you one of the, Have I lost you already just by mentioning them? Because that can happen. But listen, Sports Personality of the Year happened. Beth Mead became the first women's footballer to win. You know, we also had this week the Women's Champions League with two English clubs finishing top. And I think we're getting to the stage now where the importance of women's football and the stars and every every single PR person that I've spoken to about how do you create a sport which grows and it boils down to having superstars. It boils down to having personalities and people who fans gravitate towards, not just on the sport. We're now reaching a point now with women's football and the success of the Lionesses where we should see this with, with more regularity, as great as it is for Beth Mead. Women's football is getting that recognition. It's getting those eyeballs on it. And there will be more awards and more success on a personal note for, for the players to come, I imagine. Yeah, I think it's it's quite fitting, I suppose, that we're discussing this at a sort of almost end of year kind of show vibe um, because it's been such a... I, I think in sort of 10, 20 years time, you'll look back on this year being the one that transformed women's football forever. And that sounds like a grand statement, but... I mean, last week or possibly the week before, I went to the film premiere of of the Lionesses. Like that wouldn't have happened. Obviously, winning the Euros, just just incredible kind of growth. And I think, look, there's still a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. And I think part I, I would I would like to say to <laughs> to speak to our listeners directly, like reading the comments on the Times or speaking to one of my editors the other day. And the way it changes, the Euros has been really, really pleasing to see people genuinely engaging now and appreciating these players, I suppose, for, for what they were, for what they are. And I think part of that is that maybe people used to read my articles or, or read stuff we did on the website, but had never really engaged with it. They'd never properly sat down and watched a women's match and probably thought, you know, what's this sort of overhyped stuff that's being fed down our throats or whatever. And now people are starting to watch it and, and see the talent of these players. And I think nobody epitomizes that hard work and that sort of incredible year more than Beth Mead. And I was so happy to see her win that award, knowing what she's gone through it on and off the pitch in the last sort of 12 months or so. I mean, obviously for, for this is probably speaking to people who already know this, but um, obviously she was left out of the team GB squad in, in 2021, which was a massive blow for her. Her mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in that same year. Then this year they found out that that cancer was in fact terminal um, so she's been dealing with all of that while also having the absolute best sort of year of her career, won the golden boot in the Euros, won player of the tournament, obviously won the trophy, second in the Ballon d'Or. I mean, she's just had the most incredible year. And I think to, to see how at the end of that Euros, there was a moment in Trafalgar Square where she's, she stood behind the trophy. And I think it's Alex Scott that's, that's interviewing her and, and she's saying sort of, how's it going to change you? And she just said, I am Beth Mead and that's never going to change. And that's just who I am. And I think that in a sentence is why people have learned to love the Lionesses and women's football in general, because they're not prima donnas. They've not grown up with loads of money being these hot prospects for their whole career. They've had jobs, you know, they've like Lucy Bronze has worked in dominoes or whatever. Like there's so many stories like that in women's football. And I think now people are really 
engaging with that and seeing that which is it's just a, a pleasure to be part of and you know i'm genuinely buzzing for for next year and, and seeing what they can do in the world cup yeah i think molly's right and the points about some of the um reader comments i can compl- completely agree with i think that's been really interesting one of the bits that stands out when you think about that and you think about um these awards that they've won so justifiably it was fascinating to hear mead and jill scott and the others talk about us being here as women, as elite, as sports stars, you know, makes makes the conversation a more normal one for the British public. And that that to me is the most significant thing. And that's where you get more positive comments because winning an international tournament at a home stadium in the way that they did has made these players not just superstars, but household names. And I was just fascinated listening to Molly talk there and thinking about the fact that as well as working very hard, all of my bosses, please don't think I'm not. I've also in the last few weeks been uh, prepping the family Christmas quiz, which I always do every year. And the pitch around, obviously going to include one of the stars of that women's team. And I found it so hard because I like to make it a challenge. I found it so hard to pick a player that wouldn't be instantly recognizable. And that that is what says the most to me that my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, my uncles and aunties, It's so hard. it was so hard for me to find a player that wouldn't they wouldn't go oh that's chloe kelly that's jill scott that's leah williamson that and that is what was so wonderful about that tournament success and what is then equally wonderful about watching them win all the awards at the bbc um sports personality is that it shows that they have gone from being just footballers to being household names and that is a massive massive win for the women's game i was just going to say i think we should now measure all social and cultural change by whether it makes it into Tom's family Christmas quiz. I think that's a very good litmus test. <laughs> Every year we should hear the questions and, and understand, you know, what is now the, uh, the, uh, the standard for, for, for wider society. I do think it is important, Tom, that you at least bring us a sample on our next podcast of, of some of the questions that you asked, maybe the sports-related ones, and we'll see if we can answer them ourselves the next time that we are with you. But you guys have left me on that final note with a warm and fuzzy feeling ahead of this Christmas. I wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas. Uh, Thank you all for listening throughout 2022. Much, much more to come, of course, from the Game Podcast in the next year. Enjoy your Christmases. We'll be back with you between Christmas and the New Year's Day fixtures. I think we'll come to you after the next full round of fixtures. So we will encompass all of the team's first game back in the Premier League. But like I say, hit the notification button uh, and you won't miss that episode. You'll get a notification as soon as it is released. Hit subscribe wherever you are as well to make sure that you don't miss an episode of the Game Podcast. You can go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to do that as well. We will see you very soon. Merry Christmas. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.